So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, beginning in the 12th verse through the 16th verse. And this is the reading of God's word. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, this is another Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and another Judas, Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, big idea here before we pray is, um, if I can use a cliche, Jesus doesn't call uh, the qualified, right? He qualifies the called. And that's kind of uh, our text this morning uh, in summary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit now, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we might glean the wisdom of this passage, and we would be convinced of its truth and convicted, Lord God, uh, that you are Lord. And uh, Father, we pray now that you would be amongst us and in our presence in Christ's name. Amen. Well, throughout history, uh, God has chosen ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And this is a truth that the Apostle Paul touches on in 1 Corinthians 1.20. He says, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world it didn't know God, through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so consistent with this pattern um, of God choosing weak things to defeat the strong things, Foolish things to confound the wise and the wisdom of this world. In the, in the first century, in the first few centuries, as Christianity was just getting off the ground, one of the things that drove the Romans nuts was that this uh, new religion was filled with a bunch of nobodies. They were not educated people. They were not sophisticated people. They were often slaves, poor people the lowest of society. And in Roman and Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, uh, there was this value of uh, 
of wisdom and philosophy and being an aristocrat and all of these different things and having connections politically and familial connections. And Christians seem to have none of those things. And they resented the faith early on because of that. And so God chose in the apostles ordinary men, men of low esteem, base culture. And they weren't the intellectual elite and the scholars. They weren't the literate and the highly educated. They weren't the intelligentsia of their day, if you will. They were not the theologically astute. Instead, they were uneducated and untrained men. And their only claim to fame was that they had been with Jesus. So they didn't have any degrees, they didn't have any training, right? They were not a part of the group of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the theological experts. Their only claim to fame, the only thing that they could claim is that they had been with Jesus. Now you may remember last week in verse 11, um, the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury. Remember, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and on the Sabbath, uh, there was a man with a withered hand, and he heals the man in the Sabbath, and he makes his hand whole. And the scribes and Pharisees are infuriated with Jesus. So Jesus is starting to recognize Uh, that he needs to appoint some successors. He needs to appoint ambassadors and representatives because his own death is in view. The religious elite, uh, the Jewish polity, uh, they're conspiring now to kill him. He's doing miracles. He's really making them look bad. And so he picks men who will succeed him and carry on his mission this intensifying conflict that Christ has with the scribes and the Pharisees. And um, in view of this mounting hostility, um, Jesus is thinking about the continuation of his ministry. Now you may remember in another place, Jesus tells the disciples, greater works will you do, right? And what he's talking about is carrying on Uh, the ministry and the implications of his gospel message for time, you know, and, 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 and growing people and growing churches and spreading the kingdom and spreading the message of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about every one of you will, you know, raise hundreds of people from the dead like, like I did, right? Uh, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that, that the multiplicity of disciples Uh, the spread of the message over the world and the time required for that will produce such a great yield and harvest in a way that Jesus in his limited time on earth could not accomplish. And so the first thing I want us to see is that um, this is such an important thing for Jesus that he goes to the mountainside and he prays all night in prayer. Now this is probably the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is said to pray all night in prayer. Or maybe the first place, excuse me, where it says he prays all night in prayer. And one of the first things I want us to see about the apostles is that they are divinely appointed. They're divinely appointed. And so Jesus goes and he prays and 
In this, he is an exemplary model of behavior for us, right? We've been talking a lot about Jesus praying to the Father and why Jesus needed to pray. And if Jesus needed to pray to the Father as he frequently did, you know, for these long periods of time, what does that say about us who needs the Father's help? We need the Father's help in all that we do. And so Jesus is this exemplar of behavior for us because he seeks God's help for what he has to do, right? This is really important. He's choosing men who are essentially going to take his message to the world. And it's a big deal. And he spends all night in prayer in the context of humility and seeking God in guidance. And you know what's important about that for us is Jesus wasn't Superman, Right? We kind of see Jesus, so theologians call it, uh, when we see Jesus in only supernatural terms, it's called a theology from above. Where we know as Christians, looking back on the text, looking back on the history, we know Jesus is God. And so we always view Jesus' acts in history through that lens, and that's fine. But there's another way to view Jesus, and that's what they call sometimes a theology from below, which is looking at him exclusively through human eyes. And we don't want to make the mistake of having one extreme or the other, but we want to recognize that they're both appropriate, because Jesus was both God and Jesus was man. And there were these two natures in his person. There was the divine nature, but there was also this human nature that had limitations, that had, at times, uh, uh, conundrums about life, right? And this is why he's seeking the Father in prayer, because he needs God's guidance. He needs the Father's guidance about who he should pick to succeed him. And when you think about it, you think, I mean, can you imagine this, right? So Jesus goes to the mountainside, and he prays, and he's talking to God. You know, one of the beautiful things about prayer is, Uh, If you're doing it right, it's like a counseling session, right? You know, and we're, a lot of us, you know, we're in very busy times of life, and we kind of get like the bare minimum machine gun prayer out, you know, Lord bless, you know, I thank you for the day, forgive me for my sins, help me, you know, at work today, bless my family, keep us protect us, boom, and I'm gone, right? And, you know, that's just, we're just busy, and, and so sometimes we can kind of reduce our communication with God to those just brief little moments. But you know, God wants us to talk to him. And you can imagine Jesus all night talking to the Father about who these people need to be. Uh, and, And God talking back to Jesus about their character, their personality traits, where Jesus would find them, what they might look like, how Jesus might be equipped to deal with their conflicting personalities, and all of these things, and what, what, in what ways Jesus might need to train one or the other, or confront one, or be more patient with this one, or more long-suffering with that one. And he's talking to God all night long. And he's probably hungry, and he's tired, right? And he's wet with the dew of the morning, He's been talking to God all night long. One Bible commentator said, he spent long hours of darkness in unceasing, fervent, persevering, inter-Trinitarian, I love that, 
inter-Trinitarian prayer to the Father before selecting the twelve. Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, praying to the Father. There's this inter-Trinitarian communication going on. And in verse 13, it says, when morning came. You know, when I read this, I have to admit, and I'm not just saying this for my sermon because it sounds good, or it sounds, I sound pious, but I really mean this. When I read this passage, it immediately changed my prayer life. Immediately. It did. I thought to myself, why do I expect so little from God in prayer? Why do, not only I spend a little, just a small amount of time, but why do I, I expect so little from God in prayer? Why don't I talk more to God about my hopes, my dreams, my fears, you know, the things that trouble me, the things that torment me, my sins, my successes, my failures, my hopes, all of these things. Why don't I do that? And I just immediately started to spend a little more time in prayer and just thought, God's ears are open to me. Why not talk to him? Why not share all that's on my heart? And I've been so strengthened by it. God is there waiting for us to hear. He wants to hear us, and he wants us to come to him. Right? And we say, well, wait a minute, you know, God is sovereign, right? Shouldn't we just pray, you know, your will be done? That's true, but God sovereignly delights in answering prayer. How does that work? Who knows? God is sovereign. I have a request. What does that do to God's eternal plan for the ages? Not my problem. (laughs) That's not my problem. God is sovereign, but he sovereignly delights in answering prayer, and he invites us to come to him in prayer. And so the first thing I want us to see is that the apostles are divinely appointed. They are the answer to Jesus' all-night prayer. And the second thing I want us to see, in verse 13 it says, he called his disciples and he chose 12 of them. The second thing I want us to see is that when Jesus picked the apostles, they were unqualified. These men were unqualified. They weren't experts. They weren't rabbis. They weren't teachers. You know what they were? They were learners. That's what the word disciple means. Disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, and it means student or follower or learner. And as I said right before the sermon, you know, we look at this and think that Jesus was a loner, and he just randomly calls 12 guys and says, follow me. But in reality, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there's this crowd of people kind of following Jesus around Capernaum. There's a crowd of people following him, and it's among that group of people that Jesus chooses his disciples. Um, And the people he chooses, along this idea that they were unqualified, are people that he can fill up, people he can equip, people he can train, and people he can prepare. You know what humility does for you? It makes you teachable. This is why God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, because proud people are unteachable. In fact, sometimes knowing too much is the worst thing for you, right? Some of you are teachers, um, 
talking with, uh, we, we had dinner last night with the Cresseliuses, and, and they teach music and people how to sing. And I would imagine that it's frustrating if somebody shows up telling you how much he knows and interfering with the process of teaching when they're trying to say, oh, no, 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 I already know this, and I already know that, right? You're probably tempted to say, you know, out the door, you know? If you know it all, you don't need me. But humility uh, is what marks a disciple, right? You say, I'm a disciple of Christ, or I'm a follower of Christ. Followers of Christ are teachable. They are humble enough to recognize that they don't know everything. You know, one of, the, one of the interesting things seminary does for you is it drops you down a dozen notches on, the, on the, the pride scale. Because you think you know something, and you get there, and you realize that you really don't know anything, you know? And it's a good thing. It's a humbling experience. But Jesus does not choose people who know it all. He doesn't choose the religious experts. He doesn't choose the, uh, the people who have all this training. He doesn't choose the theologians. He chooses uneducated, unlearned people, humble people. They were unqualified, and they knew it. And that was a bonus for Jesus. The expertise of the Pharisees and scribes was a disadvantage because they didn't have enough humility to recognize that Jesus could teach them anything. People who think they know too much are unteachable. In fact, this is why in another place in Matthew 18, Jesus says, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So many friends I've had through the years um, who say, you know, well, I've got my own idea of God, right? Maribel and I, when we, were, when we were first got together, we had some friends, another couple we were friends with. Um, do you remember the story uh, with the name in the Bible in the coffin? We were trying to share the gospel. We were young Christians, and there was a couple we were friends with, and we had just gotten into church and just gotten to know the Lord, and we wanted to share our faith, and... Um, and they said to us, um, the husband said, um, you know, we've got our own ideas of God, but we know we'll be okay because our Uncle Bob was a really, he was a really godly man, and we, and we wrote our name in a Bible and put it in his coffin. And we know we're okay. And I just went, you know, I was just, you know, like blown away. I didn't know what to say. I was just dumbfounded at that. And uh, it, it was just one of these weird, bizarre things where it lets you know that, you know, when we have all these ideas about God that are divorced from what God reveals to us in his word, right, we get off on all these crazy, you know, tangents, all these crazy ideas, but God calls us to discipleship. God calls us to an apprenticeship with him, in his son. And if you're an apprentice, you're a learner, which means there's a humility, right? I'm harping on this idea of humility. The disciples were humble. They were learners. They weren't know-it-alls. They recognized that Jesus could teach them something. And Jesus said, unless you become like a little kid, you'll never enter the kingdom. They were ordinary men, the disciples. They all came from unimpressive stock. And in a really important way, all of God's patriarchs, men and women in the Bible that, ever got, that God ever used were unimpressive people. 
Abraham was just a kid sweeping up the floor in his dad's idol shop in Ur. Moses was just a shepherd with a stuttering problem whose most important article, the most important item he owned was a stick. Right? You know, God, you know Moses said, you know, the Egyptians aren't going to believe me. God says, well, what's in your hand? Well, they're just his staff. Well, take the staff. You know? I mean, it's all, he was just a humble guy with a stuttering problem. Had to have his brother Aaron speak for him. David was just a red-headed shepherd boy whose own family didn't even invite him to the king-choosing ceremony with the prophet Samuel. You know, his father has all of his other sons show up to this ceremony where the prophet Samuel is going to choose Israel's next king, and they don't even invite David. And by the way, when the Bible says he was ruddy, it doesn't mean he was a runt. It means he had red hair. So he was awkward looking for the rest of them, I would imagine. Right? These are Middle Eastern Semitic people, and David's got red hair. And so all of them were ordinary people. And throughout the Bible, the list, this list just goes on and on and on. And if it teaches us anything, it's that God is pleased to exalt the lowly and unqualified. And why am I talking about this? One of the reasons that I'm harping on this so hard is because we want to be the kind of, insur- we want to be the kind of church that embodies the mission that God gave to his apostles. And if we're not careful, we can disqualify ourselves right out the gate by thinking, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not articulate enough, I don't have enough training, I don't know enough of the Bible, etc., etc., etc. And I just want to say that those, that's not the criteria. Your expertise, how well you know the Bible, how articulate you can communicate the message is not the criteria for God using you. Faith and humility are. That's it. Faith and humility. I've seen someone come to Christ by hearing the most simple, fundamental message of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested in studying and having answers, right? The Bible says, 1 Peter 3.15, for us to have an answer of the hope that lies within us, right? To give an answer to all men, that's true. But you can't know everything. And so there are some fundamental things that we come to know as Christians, and God is pleased to use that rudimentary knowledge we have of him to save sinners. And the third thing I want us to see is that they didn't choose him. He chose them. He chose them. They didn't choose him. John 15 and 16 says, You didn't choose me, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Every one of you are here, right? If you made a choice to to, to seek after God, it's because God was at work in your heart, doing things behind the scene on your behalf, behind the scenes that you didn't even know was going on. God was the one pursuing us. God called us. He chose us. And one can't help but to see, here in this story of Jesus going to the mountain, praying to the Father all night, there's this parallel of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? He chooses 12. This number 12 is important. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 says, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations, which is to say 
you weren't anybody. Right? And God tells Israel, you weren't the most important. You weren't the most powerful. You weren't the most numerous. The most noble and respectful. You were a bunch of nobodies. But God is so pleased to shine on nobodies because guess who gets the glory? God does. When God uses humble, ordinary people to unfold his divine plan for the world and even save a sinner, it's he who gets the glory. That's the game God is in. So if you're humble, if you're, if you're someone who at times has struggled feeling unqualified, you're in good company. Because that's who God wants to use. I've got a whole section in my notes here about the significance of what it means that there are 12 apostles, 12 tribes, the church, the new Israel, how all that unpacks, you know. And uh, I'll just, that, that might be, you know, um, a an aside for another day. But I simply want to say that what Jesus is doing in calling the 12 disciples is essentially creating a new and renewed Israel. God's redemptive promises to his people and for the world are being renewed in his call to the apostles and the church that's going to be built on this foundation. And verse 13 says, When the morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them. And he chose 12 of them, who he also named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew and James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel. Matthew, who a couple weeks ago we preached about, was Levi the tax collector. Thomas, right? You know, doubting Thomas. It's just a shame that in history you're remembered for being a doubter, you know? I mean, we all probably would have had the same experience as Thomas, right? I mean, we're all doubters. Thomas is probably a really good guy. But, you know, we know him by doubting Thomas. And then there's another James, a son of Alphaeus. Simon, not Peter, but Simon the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James. And then there's Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, in the New Testament, the list of the disciples is given four different times. Matthew, Mark, Luke and Acts. And the list is in groups of four in descending order uh, corresponding to the level of intimacy. So uh, Peter and Andrew are brothers, James and John are brothers, and they're the closest to Jesus. And then after that, you have Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas in the second grouping, And in the bottom grouping, there's James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. And sometimes that order gets a little mixed up, but in every list, Peter is always at the top of the twelve, and Judas is always at the bottom of the twelve. And what's interesting is not only that these men, as we've just been talking about for the last 15 minutes, are unqualified and ordinary and mediocre, but what else do we see here? They're a diverse group. They're diverse. Matthew is a tax collector working for the Romans, and Simon is a zealot who killed people like that. So just so, just so you know, um, the first century Jewish zealots were kind of the ancient equivalent to ISIS. They were terrorists. 
They were people who were so nationalistic about their nation and their religion that they murdered foreigners and they murdered foreign occupiers. They would lay in wait. In fact, they were called, uh, some of them were called the Sicarii, which is another word for dagger. They were called dagger men. And they would lay in wait and they would murder Roman officials. In fact, in fact, when Jesus was on trial and Pilate said, whom should I release to you? They asked for one of these zealots, and his name was Barabbas, a murderer. Simon, one of the 12 apostles, is one of those guys. And Jesus has got him paired up in his inner circle with Matthew, a task collector for the Romans. And I want to say this. The gospel brings people who normally would have no connection with each other together, right? I mean, a lot of us in here, unless, without our Christian faith, without our our faith in Christ, have nothing, absolutely nothing in common. But the fact that we all love Jesus actually is all the common ground we need. I mean, look around for a second. Take a moment and just look around to the people, you know, next to you and back of you. Just, Just look at them. I know it's uncomfortable. Just look around for a second, all right? They may not like the same music you do. They may not like the style of clothing you do, right? They may be square, you know? They still use that word, they're square, right? They may, you know, they may not like, you know, the kind of things you like or be interested in the things you do, but everyone you just looked at loves Jesus just like you do. They love the Lord, and they're following Christ just like you. And in that sense, you have more in common with your brother or your sister in Christ than you do even with an unbelieving family member. Jesus calls in his disciples as a model for the church and the world, he calls together a diverse group to embody unity in the bond of fellowship and love. That's what the church is. That's what the disciples were, and that's what God calls us to be. Now, what does this all mean for you and me, right? What does this all mean for us? Well, it means that God wants to use you in powerful ways. One of the things that all of our Connect groups are doing this fall is week after week, until Christmas, we're all going to be sharing the story of our individual journeys of faith. And one of the reasons we're going to do that week after week is so that you can can be able to articulate your testimony. Because if I say to you, which I've been saying for the last year that I've been here at this church, you know, let's embody a missional culture, missional thinking, where, where evangelism is not just for the evangelists, And some of you are thinking, I have no clue how to do that. Well, that's what we're going to be doing this next fall. We're going to be talking through and listening to other people share their faith. But it means God wants to use us in powerful ways. And it means that your lack of qualification is not a mark against you, but it's the exact criteria for an apprenticeship with Jesus. God doesn't want any experts here. He wants learners. He wants disciples. 
And it means that God delights in demonstrating his extraordinary power through ordinary means. We talked last week in our sermon about the Sabbath, the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, the breaking of bread and wine, receiving the elements, prayer, fellowship with each other. Those are ordinary things, but God delights in communicating his grace to us through those ordinary things. And God delights in transforming the world through Jesus by using ordinary people who are just being faithful and obedient. God chooses the ordinary things so that human beings can't boast in God's presence. He uses ordinary people so that he can get the glory. God wants to use you, not some future, more qualified version of you. He wants to use the person you are right now at this place in your life where you are right now. And if there is one requirement, simple requirement, it is simply that you trust and believe him. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes and he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts and uh, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in these jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. God is pleased to glorify himself in us, earthen vessels, jars of clay, to use ordinary people to accomplish his purpose to redeem the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the fact that uh, you called the apostles 12 ordinary men. And there were others also. There were ordinary women who came alongside Christ and the apostles to proclaim Jesus and the risen Lord. And they had mistakes, they had sins, they had things they struggled with, problems, shortcomings, inadequacies. And they were unqualified, just like the rest of us. But we thank you, O oh God, that you empower us with your spirit and you call us to this high calling of kingdom work to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Father, we pray now that you would encourage us, even as we, as we go into um, the next few weeks and as we all go into our connect groups, that we would really have a mind to hear others as they share their testimony and learn to share ours, that you might use us to witness and share the gospel with friends and neighbors and coworkers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.